Welcome, everyone. This is Mia Ferroletto, publisher of New Observations Magazine. Welcome to New Observations Podcast. Before we get into our um, wonderful interview today, I wanted to share a little bit of information about our upcoming conference on consciousness and contact, July 22nd through the 26th in South Dakota. This is the fourth um, year, hard to believe, that we'll be doing these small conferences. And um, I'm delighted to be able to say that things are opening up on the Pine Ridge Reservation. So uh, in addition to all of the other exciting things and 15 speakers we have planned, we will be able to visit Pine Ridge and experience um, some, some special things there as well. So if you have any questions or um, would like further information about the conference, please get in touch with me either by email at mia.ferroletto at gmail.com or by phone at 802-952-6217. Thank you. Um, today, I would like to welcome our guest, Phil Borges, to New Observations Podcast. Phil is a very, very talented photographer and filmmaker um, whose work I became familiar with uh, through his TED Talk. And I have to say, I've watched his presentation five or six times. Uh, it, it's just inspiring. Uh, he has traveled around the globe interviewing uh, shaman in various cultures, and um, his photographs are absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, coming back to the U.S., he produced uh, and directed the film Crazy Wise, which interviews and follows uh, a young man who who has been diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, which coincided with his um, spiritual awakening, his kundalini activation. And this is not uncommon. Many people who are actually going through spiritual uh, convergence are diagnosed with psychiatric pro problems such as schizophrenia or manic depressive uh, disorder or bipolar disorder um, because that has been the way that the psychiatric world has interpreted these these um, events in a person's life as opposed to in other societies and communities which support this spiritual awakening or shamanism in various cultures and have the community and the ability to uh, nurture a person through this extraordinary time uh, in their spiritual development. So we will cover um, this in depth in this conversation. Welcome to the show, Phil. Well, Mia, such a pleasure to be here, and thank you for that introduction. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm delighted to have you here. Um, 
especially since I have been a fan for such such a long while now. Can you give us some information on your background and how you became interested in in shamanism? Yeah, let's see. Where should I start? Um, one of the things that really I should go back to the fact that I was raised on a ranch in Utah um, during my high school years. I should say I spent most of the year on the ranch, and um, and at that time it was in the 50s. We were pretty much living a subsistence lifestyle. I mean, we'd go into the grocery stores maybe once a month at most um, and you know we even made our own soap so we grew everything um, uh, we uh, it, it was just the only time we would need to get goods is to go in to fix a tractor or some hardware like that so living close to the land was very appealing to me at the time. I loved it. If I was coming from the San Francisco Bay Area where I lived in the wintertime, but going back to the ranch at that time was just the highlight of my life. So, you know, when I started traveling, the places I wanted to go were remote areas, and I ended up wanting to go into tribal and indigenous communities, people who live close to the land, and I was just attracted to that. So when I became a photographer, and I did so as a second career, I, I practiced orthodontics for 18 years before I decided I really wanted to get into media and start doing photography and film. Um, so when that happened, when I was about 45, I um, started focusing my lens on indigenous and tribal cultures and trying to highlight the, the challenges they faced, the human rights issues that they had to contend with. And I actually started in Tibet, where Mao had taken over the Tibetan country in 1949 he invaded Tibet and and it's been um, held by China ever since and so I did a story on that and um, when I was in the little town of Dharamsala India where the Dalai Lama now lives that's where I started that first project and I was invited to go in and watch the Nechung Oracle, or I should say the Kutin, which is the physical person who channels the Nechung Oracle. I was invited to watch the Kutin go into trance and channel the Nechung Oracle, which is a Tibetan spirit, deity, that is considered to be the protector spirit of the Tibetan people. And that's really where my interest in shamanism started because I had no ex um, exposure to shamanic work prior to that time or even any exposure to a culture that used people that go into altered states of consciousness to do their healing or to do their visionary work. And so it was a real eye-opener when I, when I met Tuptim Nordup, is his name. He was a 30-year-old monk 
and watched him go into trance in the ceremony and then later was able to interview him. That is amazing. It's it's also in, incredible the way synchronicity enters our lives and leads us in in totally unexpected um, new directions, um, which you know there are no coincidences. It seems we we are on our path and we find ourselves in new environments um, all the time. So how how did this develop once you um, met him and interviewed him? Uh, I I imagine you did a series of photographs of of him at the time. Well, actually, you know, when I was invited to go in and watch him go into the ceremony, I was actually invited by a columnist for the Daily Telegraph in London, Mick Brown, who I'd met in Dharamsala. While I was there just photographing the refugees that were coming in from Tibet. You know, Dharamsala, India is where the Dalai Lama lives in exile. And a lot of the Tibetans that escape out of Tibet end up in Dharamsala. And um, so it's a community of Tibetans in exile. So I had started, my plan was to do a book on the whole, um, the whole, issue that came up with Tibet, with um, China taking over Tibet and what was going on inside of Tibet. And I decided to start by interviewing these people coming out uh, in, in, in exile and living in Dharamsala. So I was interviewing all these what they called the new arrivals. And I met Mick and he said, you know, I'm going to be going and watching the Nechung Lukul go into trance. And I said, who's that? He told me. I said, certainly, I'd love to come along. And so I just went in. I, I did take a camera, but it was a still camera. And I, I managed to shoot one or two shots, but that was it. And I'm sorry, I've got a dog barking in the background. That's here. okay. Um, my wife just got home. Um, maybe I can quiet him down. Uh, anyway, I um, so I was invited to go in, and so it was very ceremonial. All of a sudden, monks were chanting; they were beating their drums and blowing the horns, and you know, it was it was kind of building up to this cacophony of sound. It was just kind of discordant in a way, and. And the Kooten came in, he sat down, and they took this hat. And I le later learned it weighed about 60 pounds, tall, four and a half foot tall, pointed hat, and lifted it, four, four monks lifted it onto his head. His head sort of went back, like you know, under the weight of it. His eyes rolled back closed, and then he started talking in this high-pitched voice that didn't sound natural. And one of the monks was writing down everything he was saying, and, and then he, um, after he was done talking, he more or less just collapsed, and they had to carry him out of the room. And it was just like, whoa, <laughs> was that a, a performance of some sort, or... Um, you know, I just didn't know what 
it was all about, other than I, I assumed he was channeling some information that they needed. And uh, so later, two days later, Mick and I were invited to go and interview him. And I'll never forget, I, I was expecting to <laughs> see this kind of grand performance type guy, you know. And here it was, a 30-year-old kid at the time. I was 52. <laughs> and and I, 30 years old and so humble and unassuming in this very simple little room, his little monk's quarters where he had a small bed and a few articles, um, you know, and I you know, I was expecting to go into this grand room where, <laughs> where you know, there was this very celebrated guy. And, and uh, but anyway, very humble. And and he just we asked him, "How did you get chosen to be the Kutin?" And he listed some symptoms, like hearing voices, um, having wild personality swings wide mood swings as well, personality changes. Um, he described having this jolt of like electricity. He said it was almost like an electric shock, shock going up his spine. And he was totally frightened. He thought he was dying. But the older monks around him realized that um, he had this special sensitivity, and they told him, you know, you have probably the sensitivity to be a Kooten, and then they started mentoring him and uh, and eventually sent him to the Dalai Lama uh, uh, to ask um, the Dalai Lama. Our, he was to go to the Dalai Lama and let the Dalai Lama know if he would want to be a Kooten because it's evidently quite a hard life. Um, in terms of going into trance and coming back over and over again. So he went in and he confirmed that, yes, I want to serve as a Guten. And he is I, he's about 54 years old now, I guess. And I saw him when he was about 50 in L.A., and he looked healthy and fine. <laughs> but Anyway, he, you know, I just thought, you know, these are a lot of the symptoms that we pathologize and medicate. And it was just interesting to me that that's, that's what they, you know, that's the way they chose him to be in that position. And it wasn't long after that. I think it was just about a year later, and I was doing another one of my projects in Kenya, and I ran across um, a what they called a predictor in the Samburu tribe up in north, northern Kenya, a woman by the name of Sekulin, who was 37, I think, when I met her. And she had five children. And she, at 14, had a similar story. She was only not only hearing voices, she was having visions, she was fainting a lot, having fainting spells, and she thought she was dying. And an older grandmother, a grandmother took her aside and told her she had a special sensitivity and a, a similar thing, that 
and brought her through a process. And I didn't ask what it was, unfortunately. I, if I could go back, I certainly would have. But brought her through a process in which she learned to manage that sensitivity, and now she was a very well-known, what they called predictor, a visionary in her tribe, and she was also a healer. So that got me going on the whole subject because I was mainly doing human rights stories. And so I continued to do my human rights stories, but every time I would go into a tribe or a community, indigenous community, I would ask, you know, who, your, who are your healers? Who are your visionaries here? And I ended up interviewing over the course of 25 years, probably 35 or 40 in different parts of the world. And I can say that the majority were chosen by having a crisis of some sort and in their youth. And it was not always a, a physical crisis like a sickness or a high fever. It was often a mental emotional crisis, a psychological crisis in the symptoms they talked about. So that's, that's where my interest came, and um, it was um, not until 2012 that I met Adam, who was a kid here in the United States, lived in Seattle, where I lived. I was doing, just kind of for fun, doing a small film on meditation and just wanting to know what people are getting out of the practice and what it's done for them, how long they've been practicing. So I was just doing that as a friend, just to do something while I was back in town in between my travels. And that's what started that film. Well, this is a, a good moment for us to take a break for and do our first commercial um, message. So we'll be right back. Okay. Welcome back to the show. Adam um, looks like an extraordinary young man, uh, creative, intelligent, articulate, um, and, and really f filled with love, actually. I had such a strong sense of him watching your, your film Crazy Wise. Yes, yes. Very compassionate, um, very articulate, very... Um, you know, the first thing when we sat him down, I, and we were just interviewing a series of people for meditation, and it ended up his story was so interesting that I decided to stop interviewing anybody else and concentrate on him. But I'll never forget the first in the first interview what he said. He said, you know, four days after my 20th birthday, I went nuts, in his words. It was the first time I felt connected to the universe, where I was it and it was me. And, but then I kept going. And I'm sort of abbreviating what he said. I can't remember it all. But he said, and then I kept going, and I went way too far, and then it got scary. And at that point, 
he was, um, you know, his parents didn't know what to do. They didn't understand what was going on. He was coming up with equations that would solve all the family's problems, and they were saying, what? You know, this doesn't make any sense at all. And they got very worried. They took him to a psychiatrist, and he put him on, I think, Depakote. And one of the first drugs that he gave him, he was diagnosed actually as bipolar, which bipolar. is the most common diagnosis given out today. It used to be called manic depressive disorder. And he ended up, over a four-year period of time, just going from one medication to the next because he was having all sorts of side effects issues. And at one point, he was taking 15 pills in a day. And he eventually, after four years of that, just became totally frustrated. He cut off all his medications all at once, which I've learned since then is a very dangerous thing to do because all these medications are much like heroin. They have a huge withdrawal issue with them when you just cut them off like that. But anyway, he did it. He cut them all off, went cold turkey, and then he did a Vipassana meditation retreat. And that's kind of, as I've learned since, the boot camp of meditation retreats. Meditating 10 hours a day, 10 to 12 hours a day, for 10 straight days, silent meditation not looking at anybody in the eye, not saying a word. And um, anyway, he did that. And it was astonishing. He came out of it. He um, was stabilized. He was able to go back to work. He went back. He was working at Whole Foods grocery store. He went back to work. And that's just shortly after that is when I met him. So he, and when I met him, seemed like a, yeah, just this handsome kid, um, long brown hair and a beard. I mean, he could easily, if he was wearing the right garb, he could have been mistaken for Jesus real easily. And uh, he um, just had this very light, uh, humorous effect. His... Yeah, he, he just seemed very light and funny. And um, so I would have never known that he had gone through the trial that he did over that four-year period. So I was just curious and started um, interviewing him. And down the line, things started to take a whole different turn. And that's what I've learned about making a feature-length documentary, at least, at least if you're following a person and watching their life unfold because it's like i say it's like chasing a wild horse you just don't know where it's going to go and it went in places we never dreamed it would well in terms of the 35 to to 40 other individuals around the world who are practicing shaman for their communities i wonder many of them have families and and daily lives that they're attached to and grounded by um as as well as their sh shamanic work is that accurate 
Well, yeah, some do and some don't. I mean, I've met um, I've met almost an equal number of men and women that are uh, what we call shaman. That word came from Sama, which came out of um, Siberia, actually. But they go by different names, and um, but I, I would say, in terms of how many were married and not married. I haven't thought about that, but I would have to think, John Dugan, yeah, yeah I, I would say the ones I knew were partnered in some way or had kids um, were in the minority, as uh-huh. I think about it. Um, you know, the, many of the women were older. Like in Mongolia, the, the the shaman I met there, the female shaman, were all like 60, 70 plus. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, so they had they, devoted themselves to their shamanic work. Yeah. And basically, they were told, you know, if they didn't, it, it the the calling that came as the symptoms of what we would call a psychotic break often or a horrible sickness, if they didn't answer the calling, I heard this very often, um, they could become sick and die. They, it was something that they um, were called to do and they looked at it as a calling. and in that they wouldn't, many of them didn't charge any money for what they did. Um, most of them didn't. They usually had, you know, kids to raise in the case of Sekulin or goats to herd or other work to do besides their shamanic healing and visionary work. In fact, the one of the... Mongolian shaman, a woman by the name of Namid, who's in our film, actually. Um, I watched her working with her clients, and they live in these gurs, these tents that are maybe 15 to 20 feet in diameter. And there's a gur every mile and a half in the area we were. I mean, it's very sparsely populated, northern Mongolia. And it's steady stream of clients were coming in on horseback to see her and I had given her like $35 to stay near her place to pitch my tent near her place while I was watching her do her work and she gave it all away to her clients (laughs) over the time I was there it was like I thought, man, this is a lot different than it is where I come from. <laughs> a sign of a true mystic, definitely. That's uh, you, you know that that hallmark generosity is uh, is you know it really is true. It's consistent um, throughout in terms of people who who really have, in, in my opinion and my experience, the true mystical you know, calling. And mine as well, because not only have I interviewed these shaman, but since I've done Crazy Wise and done that TED Talk that 
was titled, I didn't title it, but they titled it um, Psychosis or Spiritual Awakening, which has gotten, I guess, four and a half million views now. So we get a lot of calls from people and a lot of notes on email about their story. They want to tell their story. And um, so many of them end up, um, if they successfully navigate the crisis, and usually if it happens here in our culture, they have to do it on their own if they're, unless they are lucky and find a relative that knows what's happening or a therapist that knows what's happening. But once they've successfully navigated the crisis and they've put meaning to it and they understand it and they know how to go in and out of that state, um, then they typically um, end up with a lot more compassion and a lot more empathy. It's like that mystical experience of being what Adam called being at one with the universe, where I was it, it was me. You no longer have this domination by this ego self that is, you know, feeling separate from the whole. You feel more of a kinship and a more of a responsibility to the whole. So I think that's the main thing that makes them good healers. Well, we're about to take our second break, but we'll be right back, and I would like to um, explore um, Adam as a potential healer. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So, Phil, is Adam actively involved in doing healing work? Not that I know of. Um, Adam, so we ended up following two people in this, in this film. While we were working with Adam and interviewing all the experts that we started interviewing, all the professional mental health workers and social workers, and philosophers and um, other other people that uh, I was trying to think of not it's not paranormal psychologists is transpersonal psychologists much like Stan Groff um, while we were doing all those interviews uh, I was posting them our, our team was posting them on the internet and building an audience so we could eventually do a Kickstarter to fund the film. And while we were doing that, we got a call from a woman back in New York, African-American woman, who had had one of these breaks and had met a Samburu, which is a South African shaman living in Baltimore, and she was working with that woman to go through her initiation and, and help heal her, um, her mental emotional distress. But <clears throat> she was looking at it as a way to become a, 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 a um, shaman herself of that 
of that culture. So she ended up going through that initiation, and I was able to film part of that and watch her go through that over a year to understand it a little bit more. On the other hand, Adam was very hesitant to become any type of healer. He didn't want that label put on himself. He was mm-hmm. very humble in terms of saying, I don't want to be called a shaman. I, you know, I'm having a lot of difficulty. And he had a lot of difficulty through the movie. And it was, it was so Adam became sort of a, a story on how a person in this state, in our culture, typically becomes homeless. He ended up getting beat up in Hawaii, almost got all his teeth kicked out by a gang that resented having homeless people from the mainland on their island. Um, And uh, he eventually settled down and, well, it would take me a while to tell his whole story. But anyway, no, he did not become a healer, but he did heal. And he also helped his mother um, throughout her cancer. Um, well, he, and and death, uh, which I I think was you know really significant um, yeah. in terms of his own personal healing. Yes, yes, he definitely connected with her because they had become disconnected. Because what happened at that at the fourth he did four Vipassana retreats, and at the fourth one. This is while we were filming him um, during the time we were doing the interviews with him and shooting B-roll. He had this childhood trauma come into consciousness that he had totally blocked from his mind. And it was that his grandfather had molested him. And when he went to the, and it came up and it was very disrupting in the Vipassana, he went to the leaders of the Vipassana Possum retreat told them what was happening and they said we're sorry we cannot help you here with that and they sent him home and he went home and he told his parents of what what came up and what he came to realize had happened to him and they didn't believe him they said you know you've been disrupting our family long enough and this has got to stop and they they sent just discounted what he had experienced, and so wasn't all of a there sudden, the question? Excuse, sorry, wasn't there the question also that his father and his grandfather might have abused him from the beginning? Was wasn't he thinking it might be two people instead of one? Yeah, three. <laughs> oh, three, so, third. Yeah, even his mother. I mean, so oh. he later realized that he was just spiraling down into the. So I'll I'll just back up and say once he was um, distanced from his parents and the Vipassana, that was his two main pillars of support at that point in his life. His life just went into a downward spiral that really shocked us all on our team. And it took him only about a month before he was homeless, living in his car, I uh, lost his beautiful little cottage. He was living on a lake up here in the Cascade Mountains. Uh, and it was 
incredible to see that whole transformation happen so quickly. So during that downward spiral, especially after he got beat up, he went into this state of utter paranoia and everybody, including us on the team, were out to either take advantage of him or hurt him. He just went into this severe state of PTSD, I guess they'd call it. And um, so during that time is when he came up with the thoughts that his parents had also molested him. But he later, as he healed, realized that that was an illusion. But he, he definitely realized that his grandfather had. So it became very complicated. <laughs> Yeah, if you're um, familiar with working with your kundalini energy, you go way up and then you come way down. And the, the paranoia um, can easily be um, an outgrowth of going down without the knowledge to assist you in the process. Yeah. You're breaking up a little bit. So oh, sorry. Can, is this... Is this uh, what I said was the paranoia can be um, a, a, a manifestation of the coming down from the from the you know the high of the Kundalini experience. Mm. If you're if you're not working with it in an active way, um, paranoia can be a common side effect. Yeah. Yeah, you you know the way I've looked at it. I haven't framed it quite like that, but I I could see how it could be. I've always thought that what happens when a person goes into these altered states, or I call them extraordinary states of consciousness, it's somewhat of an ego dissolution. Your sense of self kind of gets dismantled in some way. Um, and then... If you don't understand what's happening, it can become very frightening. It's like what Adam said, and then I went too far, and then it got scary. And in that scary state of losing your sense of self, which I can imagine could be extremely frightening if you don't know what's going on and you haven't taken a pill or something, and the ego can come back in a very inflamed way out of fear and it either can come back as um, paranoia where you think the CIA is bugging your room and following you everywhere or it could come back in an inflated sense of delusions of grandeur and coming back thinking you're there here to save the world you know things no one else knows you're the second coming you're Jesus whatever so it, it, it could come back in those two forms, and that's what I've always thought was happening. Um, in terms of Kundalini, I, um, um, that um, metaphor to explain things, I, I'm I'm not as versed on that. Well, simply um, his description of the electricity—that's mm -hmm. a manifestation of Kundalini yeah. activation. Yeah. So he he was 
you know, that was part of his his experience. Right. And, and it was very painful to him, he said, when it would happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, having had, had the experience myself, I um, know how strange it can be. Um, now, when it happened to you, Mia, did it make you paranoid? Um, not, not really. Um, I, I have to say, I, I was born um, extremely psychic. Uh, as a small child, I would, you know, tell my parents things that were going to happen, and you know, sure enough, whether you know it was in our own family or from things I had seen on television, news, I would, my father would come home from the office. He was a doctor and at night he would watch the evening news with eating his dinner on a, you know, card table watching the evening, evening news every night. And I would sit and watch news with him Mm -hmm. and I would, you know, discuss things that were being reported and say, Oh, this is going to happen. And sure enough, a week later, (laughs) <laughs> you know, whether it was something about my Aunt Helen or uh, an event on the news, it would happen, and well. uh, whatever I had said. And, you know, I always get messages uh, in, the, in the form of words. I don't think of myself as hearing voices per se, but, you know, I get very specific messages that I incorporate in into my daily life and um it's been extremely helpful Mm. you know you can call it intuition you can name it all kinds of things Mm -hmm. but um you know one example is when i bought my house in upstate new york i was on my way to the dentist that morning and there was hardly any snow on the ground but it was snowing lightly and I had loafers on, and my intuition told me to uh, put on my rubber boots. You know, I heard, got the message, uh, put on the rubber boots, drove to the dentist's office, and at a certain point, I hit a patch of black ice. My car was thrown to the other side of the road and back again, and then off the road, and I knocked over two mature pine trees and the major electrical pole for the area. And mm-hmm. my car was conducting 38,000 volts of electricity. And I got out of the car because I had flames on the other side of my windshield. And had I not had my rubber boots on, I would have been electrocuted. Wow. So um, it was quite an amazing experience, and um, from an astrological uh, perspective, the planet Uranus, which is electricity, was exactly on my sun, both at 13 degrees Aquarius. So it was, you know, you could look at the symbolic representation in terms of where the planets were but I caused a complete blackout in the entire area I landed on this poor man's front lawn just like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz and 
I'll never forget, I blew up his TV set and he had an artificial leg. He had a leg amputated. So he came out and said, come in, come in. And, um, you know, 25 rescuers were at the scene and no one had had ever seen anyone um, survive an accident like that. Hmm. The way I did, but I had... And at the moment, driving in the car where I had, you know, realized that I had lost control of the car and was never going to get it back again, all I could think of was Carlos Castaneda and Don Juan (laughs) and uh, the teachings of Don Juan, and I, you know, said, relinquish control, got the message that I was to relinquish control and that everything would be fine. To and let it was. go. To let go. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's a big one. Especially so to know when to do it. <laughs> ex- exactly. But in, in my life, I learned very early on, you know, that these messages were beneficial and to work with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a story. Yeah. Well, I've had a, a really interesting life. <laughs> As you have too. And and that's why I I you know, think that um we're at a remarkable point in human progress, human um evolution mm-hmm. where I I I think people in general are becoming more connected to this part of themselves, which I believe is our true nature. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> because we come from such a disconnected society, and that's what the other thing I've realized by spending the last now 30 years going back and forth from these traditional cultures to the culture we live in here in the U.S. and in the Western world, I should say, that you know in terms of being connected to each other i mean there's no comparison in the amount of time people spend with each other in these communities uh hours they have so much leisure time really to just sit around and chatting and under trees and and you know when i would pitch my tent in some of these little villages and want to retire early to you know read a book or something they would think i was mad at them (laughs) oh really (laughs) my 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 need for being alone is just um you know an alone time (laughs) far exceeded theirs and and but not only that you know they have this connection to the earth in a way and it's just not because they have to grow all or hunt and gather all their food. Of course, that attaches them to the, to the earth in a way we're not. But it's also they put spiritual meaning in everything in, in the earth. There's spirits of the mountains. There's spirits of the rivers and the forests and the animals. They pay homage to their, their ancestors often leaving a little bit of food at the dinner table for the ancestors. So there's this 
more of a sense of being connected, and of course they're connected to each other because they completely depend on each other to survive. Uh, there's no, usually, you know, there's a little bit of money circulating nowadays, of course, but pretty much it has to be barter, you know, doing for each other. And so they have this connection to each other, to the natural world, yeah, and to themselves. They're not freaked out when somebody goes into an extraordinary state of consciousness. It's a sign of a certain type of sensitivity. So it's a lot of the stuff we've lost. Yes, it's truly part of our our makeup, um, what we're born with. Has Adam ever um, interacted or visited an, an indigenous community? Not that I know of. I was going to take him down to the Navajo Res during our filming, and um, something he got freaked out about going, and he called it off. So that never happened. But uh, um, certainly Akaya, the other person in our film, that went through the shamanic um, initiation. She um, now does healings all over the world. She speaks all over the world, and and um, she has a practice down in Southern California, up in the hills outside of L.A. And uh, so she's become the healer and and taking it on as becoming a... Um, Sangoma, South African healer. That's wonderful. In either of their uh, case cases, did did you or did they notice um, like a, a wellspring of creativity that opened up for them? Uh, in Adam's case, he was always very creative. And he was a musician. He did a lot of drawing, and um, and he was just creative in the way he thought. And so, um, in terms of that increasing at the time of his um, episode when he was just after he turned twenty, um, I think. He went on medication so quickly that it blunted it. I don't think he got the full effect he could have if he was he had been treated correctly. Mm-hmm. But in that terms of Akaya, she certainly did. Um, she's blossomed like you wouldn't believe. And uh, so, and basically, I got to watch an initiation for the first time. I mean. I'd interviewed all these shaman, but I'd never seen one go through an initiation or been with them over the period of time they were going through it. Um, but with Kaya, I was. And in a way, it was almost for her like a 12-step program. It sounded, you know, it was be with your emotions. Don't try to run from them. Um, stay with them, feel them, uh, make friends with them, um, make amends to those you've hurt. And um, and she said that was going through that 
being through those, she was molested by her dad, by the way, um, going through those hurtful feelings and that sense of um, just being um, worthless and and uh, all the feelings she had that led her to several suicide attempts. Uh, just being with those feelings and the, in some way the San Goma leading the ceremony for her over that year and a half was able to get her to do that. And Nakaya said it was some of the most difficult times she had ever been through was during the initiation. And, but she had somebody working with her that allowed her to go with it. And the interesting thing to me lately is with this renaissance in psychedelic therapy for depression um, and, and anxiety and PTSD, end-of-life anxieties, that sort of thing, they're finding that when somebody is going through a psychedelic experience, which is much like the psychosis, only it's intentionally initiated, in fact, when LSD was first discovered, it was called a psychomimetic, not a psychedelic. And that meant mimicking a psychosis. But anyway, when going through that, um, all of a sudden I've lost my train of thought. Every once in a while I do that, I'll switch. <laughs> but when going through that um, experience, that loss of ego, you're... You're, you have a guide if it's done correctly. You have a set and setting where you have a definite intention of what you want to accomplish. That's your set and your setting. You're with somebody that's experienced, somebody that's been through it, that knows that territory. And they can encourage you when you see something that's frightening. If you see a dragon coming at you or a dark door that you're afraid to look in, they encourage you to go and press it a little bit further and ask the dragon what it wants or look through that dark door just to get you to start feeling those scary experiences that you've spent most of your life running from. And basically that's what happened with Akaya and her initiation. The Sangoma was encouraging her to get and feel that shadow part of herself. I think that's um, critical for all of us to do. To do. Um, and accepting the fact that we are not axe murderers, you know, the worst possible thing that we could learn about ourselves in, in truth is really not so horrible. So right. um, to you know, accept and love yourself first and own your feelings within whatever moment you happen to find yourself um, is the most basic um, foundation for one's spiritual life because once you clean up your channel, so to speak, um, you're in alignment then with the universal truths. Um, and it simplifies your life so completely mm -hmm. because you, you're not 
having to keep track of all this other information that is inaccurate and not, you know, honest, not honest uh, for you and not honest for the people that you're interacting with. Hmm. Well, I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I'm planning to. <laughs> but I've talked well, to a lot of people who have. It's it's amazing. I you know, I'm I'm involved with L- Lakota culture and spirituality and mm. substances um are really not a part of Lakota culture. Yep. Uh, particularly alcohol is is definitely um right. looked looked on as, you know, it's devastated so many native cultures. It, it, it certainly, it certainly has, and a number of spiritual people believe that alcohol is just the doorway for lower-level astrals to hook on to to an individual and mm. um, you know influence them in in negative ways. Right. So um, I I personally you know will not. You use any substances right. um, because I want to keep you know my own channel as clear as possible. Yeah. But um, you know everyone is on their own individual path and needs to yeah, follow what, what I've feels found right. Is um, in terms of the tribes I've been in, uh, many of the tribes use plant medicines for going into altered states of consciousness. Um, the Navajo, the Huichols down in Mexico, of course in the Amazon, it's ayahuasca. But I, I was interested in the different ways people get to that state. And a lot of it is the drum. I know the Lakota used the Sundance, and, which I've witnessed uh, on one occasion and um, over in Pakistan, and there's a, a group of animists uh, that live on the Pakistan-Afghan border called the Kalash, and they do a whole different thing. They start a, juniper, a fire of juniper branches, sacrifice an animal, pour the blood over the smoldering branches, and the shaman inhales the smoke to go into trance. So... Mm-hmm. There's different methods of induction, and uh, that that um, cultures have used over the centuries. But the thing that's interesting to me is almost every culture I've been in does use a non-ordinary state of consciousness to access either powers of healing or visionary powers. Yeah, it's um it's so interesting from my perspective because I um at at this point I'm 65 years old now and um I I use I guess you would say prayer more. Mm. Um I I don't feel that I ever um am out of communication Mm -hmm. and um, 
regardless, even if I have a particular question or challenging uh, situation that I'm dealing with in life mm-hmm. and ask, the answer will come um, almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you it ask? Will, how how, how uh, do your prayers simply, go? Simply with words. I simply, you know, I'll give you one example. I had I was I was uh, I had curated an exhibition that will that was to take place in in New York in in an unusual uh, you know space that was not normally used for exhibition and we could not put nails in the walls and I spent hours that day looking for solutions calling art handlers mm-hmm. and finally I just you know got fed up. And I sat there and I said, you know, what is the solution? You know, the the art handlers were coming up with things that would cost thousands of dollars. Mm. And within a few minutes, I was told um, to use fish wire from the, on top of the partitions that, you know, the, uh, the very top, the four inches on top, whatever, I don't remember. This was a number of years ago now. But in fact, it was perhaps the only solution that would have worked. And it came to me through intuition minutes after asking. Mm. Um, The first big event that I ever organized in New York City was called um, A Shelter from the Storm, Artists for the Homeless of New York. And... Mm -hmm. Jasper Johns, Frank Stella, uh, Robert Rauschenberg, Andy Warhol, all these artists donated art. Mm. And originally, I had been the office manager of the Treasury Department at Sotheby's, and originally the event was going to be at Sotheby's. And when I went back there to discuss when we could do it, I was told that Sotheby's was only doing events with people in their social circle, literally, I was told this. Then I went to Christie's and their legal counsel at the time uh, turned me down. And I said, we've collected all this art. You know, what do you suggest uh, we do? And I was told, um, I was told that frankly, it was not their problem. And I sat there and asked for a solution and within minutes was told, contact the Cathedral St. John the Divine and make them your third beneficiary, which is exactly what I did. I called, I said, we'd like to make your shelter program our third beneficiary. Um, and it all worked. Mm. And ironically, I went back and, you know, for many years, organized benefit auctions at Sotheby's and Christie's uh, mm. a few years later after having done this first one. So when so, you go to ask, do you change your state of consciousness in any way? No. Do you do anything? Or do you just no. talk like you're talking I, to me now? I honestly do. I just talk like I'm talking to you. Do and you um, uh, Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes out loud, sometimes quietly uh, in mm-hmm. prayer. But mm-hmm. I've lived a contemplative life. Um, in in many ways, I mean this 
this has all been, all of these things have been integrated in my life from the time I was a small child. And as a two-year-old, I knew that I was close to God. You know, I was consciously aware of this fact. Um, so I, I was surprised at 30 to learn that people had other experiences because I, I thought my experience was universal. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. You're lucky. Well, I'll give you another example. Um, I had an art gallery uh, here in Vermont for a while, and at an opening reception, an artist from Canada and her husband and fr- and their friends were talking about a good friend of theirs in Montreal who had been riding his bicycle and um, was hit by a car and had been in a coma for a couple of months and mm. things were looking very grim for him. And everyone talked about what a wonderful guy he, he is and, um, you know, the concern and love was really clear to me. Um, and so when I went home, he kept coming into my mind and I decided to get involved and you know, asked uh, for his healing using his name. And again, moments later, was told that he would be fine. And as I often do when things like this happen, I um, want to have um, a witness, you know, someone for my own uh, clarification and, uh, you know, just... For my own well-being, I mm-hmm. want to include others in this process. So I called my friends in Canada and um, told the wife, Heidi, that I had you know, gone through this process and, w- and was told that this man would be fine. And a week later, I got a phone call from her husband, who is one of the top lawyers in Montreal. And he was calling me to tell me that this man was out of his coma and within a few days was mm. sitting in his hospital bed working on his laptop. Jeez. Incredible. So I have, you know, many, many, many experiences mm-hmm. like like this. Um but I, you know, just quietly live my life for the most part, trying to share information as much as possible, which is why we're doing this podcast today, Phil. <laughs> yeah. So wonderful. Well, I, we're, you know, getting to the end of this particular conversation, and I hope there, there will be another but is there anything that you'd like to share with our audience before we say goodbye? Oh, boy. And we've covered a lot of ground. Um, you know, I think I've covered everything that, um, that I have to share in terms of, you know, how I got into this and what I've learned. I, I definitely have come a long way from when I started Crazy Wise um, in 2012 in my understanding of what these non-ordinary states of consciousness 
or well that I like to call extraordinary states of consciousness are and how they're so misunderstood um, and how they can take so many different forms so it's not so easy to diagnose but um, yeah that we really because and the other thing I've come to realize is more and more people are experiencing them right and uh, so I, I think it's a very important message that you're doing to get this word out there and so people can have more of an understanding and realize that you know typically these people that go into these alternate states it's usually from trauma of some sort it could be childhood trauma but it could just be the trauma of living in our disconnected culture that we're in they're so sensitive they can't put up with it like I can <laughs> I mean I can right. play the game and and um, and I know that I do things like use I have and not so much now that I've gotten older but using my accomplishments uh, f to get my connection to thinking that the admiration I'm getting for what I've accomplished is really what's going to satisfy me but it's, it's no it's the direct reciprocal connections with others and with the environment and with ourselves that is got to be nurtured and all these false values or all these dead-end values like celebrity status wealth power over um, are dead ends and and a lot of our culture hasn't realized that yet I agree completely that is so beautifully said um, and it's so true it's one of the key things we have to learn from indigenous cultures yeah and, and, and I sure think my lucky stars that I got on the path that I did and got to visit these cultures that have a lot of those qualities still intact yeah it's a huge blessing to be able to in interact with people um, from all over the world and specifically who are taking their spiritual lives seriously on a daily basis such a gift yeah so, thank so you how so can much, people Maria. see Pardon? how can people watch crazy wise and yeah. um, see your photography your beautiful photography okay so my photography and my projects I've done over many many years uh, is at philborges.com p-h-i-l-b-o-r-g-e-s dot com and the film um, you can get to the film that way too there's a crazy wise link but if you want to go straight to crazy wise um, it's crazy wise film dot com wonderful well we'll have um, all this information up on the new observations podcast site as well as um, this interview so people will be able to get to you um, that way great wonderful thanks so much Mia oh thank you so much Phil um, 
Have a wonderful rest of the day. And same to you. Thank you.